devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. My name is Kimberly Pierce, and I am here with... Freya Clark. And Samantha Ellis. How are you ladies doing today? All right. Actually, I'm in Los Angeles. And of course, like it always is in Los Angeles this time of year, it's in the 90s most days. So today is a nice change because it's actually kind of cloudy in 60s. It's perfect energy. to feel that yes. during this time of year. Yes, this time of year and today's discussion, especially, it seems appropriate. Yeah, this is literally weird. the first. This is like the second cold day of the year for me, so I'm so excited. It's like nice, perfect fall weather. I've already started watching some of these horror movies, so it's going to be so great discussing them today. And with that being said, today we are jumping feet first into Horde. We're going to talk about some of the iconic, some of the legendary, the universal monster movies. Everyone has their favorite and there's so much ground to cover here. So I'm assuming we're going to have lots of fun discussion, whether it's Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, or something even more far out of left field. I'd love to start out with a question for both of you. What's your experience with these? Where did you get started with universal horror movies? I think these are pretty foundational to so many people, and I would be that. We were talking before we started recording that in selecting these movies, there was the worry of, of, oh, is this a real basic choice? But the universal monster movies are the building block of horror and of sci-fi and of so many interesting visual flares that we're used to now. So I think my entrance to them or introduction to them rather was early and so like consistent. I couldn't tell you the first one I saw. Sometimes when we talk about these, we have a very like, I remember sitting with my grandpa. No, I just remember always knowing these. And some of it is that they are pervasive in our culture to the level that many people now don't know the origin point. Like if you talk about Dracula, we'll certainly in like a literary sense, there's a different origin point. But in terms of film, like it's not everyone that understands or knows about Universal Monsters anymore, which is kind of bonkers to me. But, you know, they're a whole beast of their own. Can I do that? They're a whole monster of their own. But they're trying to make them a cinematic universe again. It's well, they're still here. Yeah, they let that go. The, <laughs> they tried with the Tom Cruise reboot to bring back, they did the mummy. And I don't know if you remember the, what they call it, the invisible universe, the dark universe. Dark universe. I and think, they, yeah. they tried to do a whole thing. And then the first one bombed <laughs> and they're like, just kidding. But they had already announced like Angelina Jolie will be and Bruno. Like they had all of these like a list, whatever's. And then the first one, then they're like, no. We're okay. Whoops, our bad. Our bad. See you, friend. I know. I remember discussion of a Johnny Depp Invisible Man yeah. a decade yeah. ago, and that would have been so neat. Although I really loved the new Invisible Man and the twist of it, and it was so much more effective because they did it centered on the woman's experience. It was Elizabeth Moss mm-hmm. was the headline of that, and to me, I'm like, oh, that's how you modernize one of these. You're taking the concept of the invisible man and what's the scariest parts of that and how would that truly affect a character and in this a female character and it's like, oh, well, what if the invisible man was a terrible boyfriend or partner who was abusive and gaslighting and all of these things and I'd rather see that modernized than see Johnny Depp replicating a poor facsimile of the original invisible Mm -hmm. man. Do you know what I mean? That's I remember. Yeah, I remember there was a Benicio del Toro Wolfman yeah. that came out. I vaguely, I thought I heard rumors that they were going to be jumpstarting it again after the Elizabeth Moss movie. But you know, everything's in a tailspin out there right now. So who knows? Hey, if so, they can make money on it, they'll jumpstart. Yeah, it. they will. 
Samantha, how about you? I totally agree with what Drea was saying. I feel like so many of these movies, and especially the ones that made my list, it's hard to really pinpoint the first time that I saw them. They're just sort of a part of our film experience. And I think that's what makes them so special. Out of the three, I can probably only tell you the first time I saw one of them. But I would say my experience is a little bit unique. Most of it is more recent as far as my getting into the Universal films. I only saw Dracula. Oh my gosh, this is going to be scary, you guys. I only saw Dracula for the first time last October. Mm -hmm. So being a classic film fan for the past 10, 15 years, that's kind of freaky. But everybody has their team Bella, team Boris. I am a team Boris girl through and through. I have a huge crush on him like completely. Oh yeah. And I've seen a lot of Boris Karloff movies for that reason, just because I think he's cute. And I think he was an amazing actor. I'm just going to put it out there. I really think there's no comparison. I think Bella could only do one thing and Boris can do everything. But <laughs> here I am starting a feud and not answering the question. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You entered the room with, with the sword drawn. <laughs> team Boris, Team Bella, throw down. That's fine. I'm Team Lon, so I'm okay over here. <laughs> then I'll Lon be touched. <laughs> I'm, I'm that. That's that's fine. I feel like Lon is was a very versatile actor. I, I really like him. Before we get into it, let me just throw out a few housekeeping announcements. If you are liking and enjoying our podcast, why don't you leave us a review? Like we'll say again in our conclusion, we are available wherever you get your podcasts, but Apple reviews do always help. Apple looks at those a lot and it decides where we end up and bumps us up on the listing. So if you're liking this podcast, why don't you pop on over to Apple Podcast and tell us what you think? And at the same time, if you are a fan of old Hollywood and classic entertainment and all the joys of pop culture history and all its forms, please subscribe to our channels, our Patreon website at patreon.com slash ticklish biz, as well as our Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. We also have a YouTube channel and an Instagram channel. Help us out. We're looking to get 300 subscribers on our Patreon so we can start a new ambitious series examining TCM's 52 must-see movies and why they matter. Now let's get back to the show. So we are going to jump into a top three looking at Universal Monsters and all its fun since we are at the time of recording jumping straight into October. We're uncomfortably close to the fall month and by the time you listen to this we will be in the middle of the month. I don't know where 2021 went, but if you've listened to us before you know how these usually go. We'll round robin it and just chat about it. And as usual, if we have the same list, let's go ahead and throw out the term. I was going to say Renfield, unless someone has anything wittier. <laughs> so like if you hear something that's on your list higher, just go ahead and Renfield and we will move on and talk about it later. So let's get going. Why don't we start with Samantha, your number three? Well, my number three is none other than The Creature from the Black Lagoon from I, 1950. I have to Renfield that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was going to happen and Kristen would be Renfielding me too. I just have to say this movie is so essential to my discovery of horror, really my discovery of film, like film of the 50s, just all of it. It is probably one of the movies I've seen the most times. I've been fortunate enough to see it in 3D at the TCM Classic Film Festival, where it was introduced. I was there too. I loved that. You were? Oh my gosh. It, it was a very fun screening, and I was really fortunate to see it in 3D. And I was really close to the screen, that screening. So it really, really added to the effect. And I really couldn't overstate this film enough. I mean, it doesn't have the best acting across the board. But it's just so fun. And ever since I saw her, like from the very first frame, I fell in love with Julie Adams. I love her. I think she carries this movie in her white bathing suit. She's so pretty. I got to write to her about it before she passed. And I also got to meet Rico Browning, who was in the suit for the underwater scenes of Creature from the Black Lagoon. So yeah, I've seen this movie a million times. It's super close to my heart. And 
my other film memory connected to it, it was, it's an almost memory, I guess you could say. For my 21st birthday, my plan was to go to Wakula Springs in Florida and stay at the hotel near where they filmed the underwater scenes. Oh, very cool. There's a lot of really cool memorabilia there and stuff like that. But that fell through because there was a gigantic hurricane the night before. <laughs> But I'm sure I'm going to make my way there someday. But yeah, I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts on this movie. I just adore it. Oh, we will. We will be talking more about this and my feelings about the acting as well. I have lots to say about this film. So why don't we continue with the number threes and how about you, Drea? All right. My number three is Dracula's Daughter. This is one. And we also had this conversation before we started talking of wondering what our assignment was because it had been listed to me of, oh, we're going to do our top three universal monsters. So I was looking at the specific quote unquote monsters in addition to the movies. Like I didn't want to say a monster that had a movie I thought was just absolute jank, but like who were the ones that were like truly speaking to me as interesting characters. So that's one of the reasons I landed on Dracula's Daughter, because although I think this is one of the movies that there's a lot to puzzle through it and a lot is that's thought provoking. Like there's obviously lesbian undertones that over the years have been more and more explored and either negated or encouraged, depending on who you talk to. I find those really interesting. But I think in terms of a monster, like the name is like Dracula is right there. And we were already introduced to Dracula. And he had such a like love of killing and like love of doing what he's doing. So the idea of introducing his daughter, who is so wonderfully portrayed and so uniquely like resents being a vampire and is fighting with her own humanity, but is also like succumbing to a bloodlust. Like I find it such a more complicated look at this concept of monster in general of this person who is really struggling and like it starts right at the end of Dracula and it begins with her wanting to like, oh, if I destroy his body in this certain way, will I be free of these shit? This is not a person or a character who is like, yes, this is me. This is all of me. You know, it is someone who really wants to like break away from being a vampire. And when you think of when this was made in the 30s, That's a crazy, to me, like a very sort of evolved psychological twist on it of, oh, wow. And she's also, Gloria Holden is so incredible in this because she's very regal and she has all of those attributes that you saw in Dracula of like, oh, he's a count. Oh, he's, you know what I mean? That there's like a European moneyed, that kind of like, oh, formidable snobbery. But also like she's, not a young waif you know this is a grown woman she's in her 30s and looks it and in there's so many different ways they could have gone with this and her performance and what they're doing with this character makes this eternally interesting to me yeah Dracula's daughter have you guys seen it I have not. It's one of those ones that are on my embarrassing miss list and your description of it just ensured it's getting watched this Halloween because that sounds absolutely fascinating. And that complexity sounds incredibly cool because this this was early 30s, right? Oh, the fully. Yeah. Yeah. And the major scene of it. And they sold it like it was sort of exploited in the marketing for this movie. But she seduced her Renfield. You're not a monster unless you got somebody working for you, basically. But her Sandor brings her this woman and it's like this seduction scene. The woman is like bare shouldered. It's sexy and she's terrified. Like it's to me, there's a lot. There's there's also it's not a flawless movie, but really there are so few that are so. But yeah, Dracula's daughter. I enjoy it. This one's definitely on my list, too. I totally agree with Kim. It's been on my list. I think the first time I actually heard of it was through Kristen. I believe that she talked about it and praised it a lot, especially with those homoerotic subtexts that she likes to talk about during our Nan Gray tribute, I think is when I yeah. heard Nan it. Gray plays the woman that's brought to her. Right. Yeah. So well, I, th- yeah. I think that's so fantastic because I love Nan Gray and ever since we talked about her. And that is definitely going on my list for this year, too, especially because, you know, it's my wheelhouse, the mid-late 30s. Exactly. 
Yeah, it's very gothic. It's very stylized, which is also something I love about these movies. Like you don't get into the sort of sloppier, schlocky stuff until later. And I just love the attention to detail and the trying to be sort of evocative and set a mood. I'll take a longer scene that maybe could benefit from some modern editing if it's beautiful and doing something. Like that's that's my sort of priorities. They were still so close to those German expressionist roots yeah. at that point. And it's just all of those films are just gorgeous. Yeah. Nope. It's it's good. I'm excited to hear what you guys think when you do see it. We'll have to have a discussion on that. So jumping to my number three, my list has gone through so many iterations as I thought this through, but I settled in on 1941's The Wolfman. Renfield. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we'll be talking about that in a little bit. So Samantha, how about your number two? My number two is definitely the 1925 version of Phantom of the Opera. I'm going to wait see if I'm going to it. All right. No, I didn't think so. So basically, I, I was talking a little bit before we started recording about this one. This movie, it holds a super special place in my heart. If you guys heard our episode where we're talking about our favorite TCM film festival memories. This was on it. It was the closing film of my first ever TCM film festival. And it was super important to me because this film was first introduced to me many years ago. I was probably 11 or 12 by my grandmother. And she basically said, oh my gosh, this is so cool. You'll love it. Because we had seen the original, not the original, the 2005 remake of Phantom of the Opera, and we'd seen it on stage a few times by that point. And finally, we saw the silent version, and I just fell in love with it. Everything from the score to the saturation (laughs) to every moment of it, the acting, it was just spot on. And I've only fallen more in love with it through the years. So getting to see it on a big screen with her, with the live orchestra at the fest was so amazing. And then the last time I saw this was just a couple of weeks ago. And my sister had not seen it since we watched it as like tweens. So we watched it together again and she loved it. One of the things that really stood out to me more than anything when it comes to this film is Mary Philbin. I think her performance is so good as Christine. And I feel like she's never talked about compared to Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney, of course, is amazing. That kind of goes without saying, especially with his makeup and everything. But Mary Philbin's reactions to every stage of the film, I think, is so fantastic. And you can never overstate the costumes and the sets from this era either. I feel like they were so ornate and inventive. And really, we haven't seen anything too like it. I think even the stage and the 2005 version fall a little flat compared to the 1925 version, in my opinion. See, my intro was to Phantom of the Opera was the stage version. So it was Michael Crawford and all that was my Phantom. It's been a long time since I've seen this one, but it was probably middle school or high school. I'd probably had fallen in love with the Broadway show and was watching everything. And I mean, I have to take the easy way out and say, God, that Lon Chaney performance is just iconic. Chances are, if you haven't seen this film, you still know exactly what we're talking about. Because that work has, I would say, hardly been equaled, especially at a time we're talking about when he was doing his own makeup. All of this was practical effect. He was what doing it all by himself each time. So it's just everything about that film is gorgeous. I hadn't given it a tremendous amount of thought from an adult perspective, but I do need to definitely rewatch it again, especially to take a look at that Mary Philbin performance. Lon Chaney, I, you know, watched it at that point. He was definitely what jumped out, but that is a up for a rewatch from me. I think Phantom of the Opera is a fascinating monster as well, because Unlike so many of the others, especially in the Universal canon that we're talking about, he wasn't made by someone else. And they do all have this like linking of there's something about them physically that separates them from other people and keeps them from feeling like 
everyone else. And his is interesting because he becomes so, so terrible of his own volition in a lot of ways. He doesn't have any built-in bloodlust, but he's also ostracized and treated horribly. So it's not unfounded that he would have perversed or twisted. But still, you can imagine there was a different possibility for his life. And he was like, I'm going fully this way. And so it's like this really interesting, the concept of monster, because some of these, they're thrust into it. You know, there's like, oh, no one asked me if I was going to be okay being othered or being different than everyone, like, or existing. And yeah, I find just the concept of the phantom as a monster has so much more to grab onto when you talk about like the psychology of it or how human treatment turns people into it. Because that's part of the root of a lot of these is getting these monster tales that are also reflecting so much about how humanity is failing in treating people. I mean, on a deeper level, but mostly there's a lot of just like, oh, this is fun. It's scary. But, you know, there's, there's things to chew on. But the Phantom is certainly that. And it's also one of those reasons like Lon Chaney's Phantom, other, you know, like when you get the stage version and you have like that iconic half mask and it's very romantic and whatever. And Lon Chaney, you're like, oh, you're grotesque. Please don't kiss me. There's not a, there's not a, oh, if you just put this pretty plaster mask on, yes, sweep me around with your tux. This is like, no, 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 no. Get me out of this boat. Like, no, thank you, sir. Lon Chaney is the one where I can literally look back and go, okay, monster movie. Phantom is not one of those ones where you necessarily always jump there because I think, like you said, that romanticization of it happens so quickly. Because even, and I don't know if we're going to talk about it later, but the 1943 Claude Rains version, by the time we hit that, and that still is universal, but you've got somebody like Claude Rains in the part. It's got the gorgeous color. It's, you know, more sweeping romantic. And then by the time you get to the stage version and then 2005, he's basically a good looking guy who has half his face covered and... There's fan fiction. There's fangirls. I was a high schooler who was head over heels in love with Michael Crawford. I know how you can sit there and go, oh, poor guy. Society beat him. So it's a story that has gone through so much evolution. And the roots of it, I mean, aside from the LaRoe novel, the roots of it are really coming here in this the 25 version. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to note, too, I mean, Lon Chaney is famous for so many different characterizations, but I think this is easily his most identifiable. Mm -hmm. If you had the Mount Rushmore of universal horror, to me, it would be Frankenstein, Dracula, Creature, and Lon Chaney's Phantom. That's very true. I, I, I was sitting here going, I was kind of thinking of his Hunchback of Notre Dame too, who's kind of one of those, but of... You know what I think is hilarious? I looked it up today. I was doing a little bit, bit of research for this and his IMDb picture is from London After Midnight <laughs> of all films. Oh, that is interesting. I don't think, right? I, I don't think I've looked. That is such a... I mean, he's so identifiable with those looks and so lost in that man of a thousand faces moniker. It's almost weird to see him without his makeup because you're just used to seeing him in all those different forms. It's kind of you lose that he was there was somebody beneath the makeup. It's so true. And I feel like once his roles got a little more complex, I feel like there's even more to appreciate. My second favorite of his would definitely be The Unknown. But this one, I just love going back to every single time. Cool, cool. Well, let's continue on. Andrea, how what about your number two? All right. My number two is what I just Renfielded from you. So we can both discuss 1941's The Wolfman. And when I said that I'm Team Lon, the glory there is, of course, you have two Lons to represent. Why have one Bela when you could have two Lons? So obviously, Wolfman portrayed by Lon Chaney Jr. And I think he's the only monster where the same actor always portrayed him. Obviously not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Or like the, the more contemporary versions, but of the time period. So he really embodied it. And there's something too about the continuation in the lineage that you have as a fan of watching that the family line and even the, the makeup and how all of those things are incorporated in the performance. But the Wolfman, you guys, it's very quick to see that 
the theme of me is I love a monster who is tortured, not by people in scenes that I have to watch, not my favorite scenes, but like internally tortured. And, and I think that in The Wolfman, there's such a great thing of you get to see it's an origin story, right? You see someone, he's bitten, he finds out he's going to become it. You don't meet him and he's already there. He's this man who is becoming this thing that he doesn't want to become, that he is heartbroken about the destruction he is doing and responsible for. And he has like grief and conscience and guilt over it. And those are the kind of twistiness I love. And it's also, to me, like, that's a great horror base. Talking about, like, what truly scares me. I'm not actually concerned about a werewolf attacking me, shockingly. But I am concerned the things that scare me are, what if you lose control over your own actions and you are doing things that you find horrific and they're ripping you up? That's scary. And that's something that like, weirdly, you can see more like people get twisted for all sorts of reasons of the grief or whatever they're going through. So there's something rooted in his journey in The Wolfman that I find very scary above and beyond the like smoky moors and the fog that he's running through. And it's shot in a way that really incorporates that. But Kim, I know obviously this was your number three. So what were your standouts too? I mean, I think really similar to yours. I think Lon Chaney Jr. is an actor who's always been a bit misunderstood. I don't know if it's having to live up to dad or what, but he is a figure who has always gotten his fair share of knocks. He gets, if you read people, you like to attack him as an actor. I've heard lots of things attacking him personally. It's very hard to find positive stuff written about Lon Chaney Jr. And I think this film shows you what he could do at his peak. He is such, especially in this part, he finds that sensitivity. You see exactly what you're talking about, that tortured nature of Larry Talbot. He's just a guy who, you know, has something happening to him that he doesn't want. There's an innocence to his portrayal. There's a sensitivity. Just there's something so deep in him as an actor and so almost soulful is the word I use that can come out. He really seems to fall into that character and he is so involved and it's truly a beautiful performance, especially through that. And he shows it throughout and I'll be talking about another iteration of it here just in a bit. But there are parts of The Wolfman for me that kind of make me cringe a little bit that Evelyn Anchor, you know, the part with Evelyn Anchors, there's moments where you go, oh, honey, you know, it's He's watching you through the window. Sure. You know, you kind of go, oh, but that cast, Claude Rains. I was just going to say, we were talking about in looking back at these. This was the one when I was remembering it and looking through the cast list. I'm like, are you kidding? All these people were in one movie together. Mm -hmm. Like other than Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah. Like you just said, Claude Rains. Ralph Bellamy is in this. Warham William. Bella Lugosi, obviously. Mm -hmm. Like there's so many people in this movie. I do want to give a shout out to Maria Ospinskaya, who plays this old gypsy woman, because as Samantha knows, if there was time travel, that is the character I would play. As we all know, like the role I was made to play was Una O'Connor's role in The Invisible Man of Shrillish Innkeeper's Wife. You know, that's the one that I'd want. But I will also take an old gypsy who also named her son Bela, who's Bela Lugosi's character. I'm like, yeah, why not? Why not just call him that? Yeah, so I soft spot for her in my heart because, you know, crazy old women characters right up my alley. But yes, the cast overall. But that's also, it's interesting you brought up Lon Chaney Jr.'s complicated real life persona. To me, there's a lot you can read into this, especially with how close he stayed to this character of the Wolfman for so many years and like, huh, I wonder what could possibly have been relating to in that character or speaking through in that character for someone who was obviously (laughs) accused of turning into a bit of a monster in ways himself. So, yeah. I mean, I would not have wanted to have such a pair of shoes to step into as he had. That couldn't have been easy. But circling on back, Evelyn Anchors is an iconic 
horror presence who I don't think has the name recognition she deserves. Horror movies are built on Evelyn Anchors' the shoulders. I have a soft spot for little Patrick Knowles in that and all his little uncomplicated handsome boyfriend characters. I love him. The look of that film, the foggy moors, it's enough for me to even look past the complicated nature of that European hamlet that they're in, you know, Claude, then the thought of Claude Rains giving birth to Lon Chaney Jr., those two sharing DNA. I don't know, but I love everything about it. Samantha, what are your thoughts? I'm about to be mutinied. I have not seen it. <laughs> but I mean, you can't be that kind of a review from you two. I mean, honestly, not to mention, like the more Drea went on about the cast, the more I was like, what? <laughs> You're like, I'm, I'm listening. listening. Okay interesting wow it's like a mile long poster just to read all of the names that are in it you're like all in the one movie this one thing i can watch yeah that was my exact thought process as i was listening to you (laughs) i definitely need to watch it i'd say it's one of the bigger universal films that has evaded me but that's another one i need to fix i think it was you know I like Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney Jr. never especially appealed to me. I had seen him in Of Mice and Men and and I loved it. He was right for that part, but I didn't think to myself, I want to see him as the Wolfman because I think time hasn't favored that character as much as some of the other ones. I haven't seen the newer version, but it's just not one that everyone's talking about remaking because you know, the effects and everything in the old one, it's a little bit shady. I think they would rather just jump on like another werewolf type of story rather than the wolf yeah. man. If I don't know if so, it's just me. Yeah, no, I agree. I think if there was a way that they could make the wolf man hot, they would make it a lot more. And part mm-hmm. of that is there. Like, that's why like Teen Wolf, you know, like the wolf man led to literally like a hundred years almost now of iterations and the reasons that some of them are super successful is, oh, how hot can we make the guy when he's in human form? And the bulk of the story is not that. It's what he is when he's a monster. So it's a complicated thing to unlock. I love Mark Romanek, who directed the Benicio Del Toro version. He's an incredibly visual director. And he, I, well, I'm assuming that was also like a studio butting heads thing. He wasn't able to really unlock it either. So if someone did, it would be very exciting for sure. I do have to give a shout out to the practical effects in the 41, though. What must have gone into that? Those transition scenes where he has to be in the exact same spot and how much of a challenge that must have been. But they pull it off and it looks like it's happening all in camera and very few things have equaled that. And it's one of those moments where you watch it and go, wow, if that was happening before computers, they're actually doing that. And it's a testament to the filmmaking, to the costuming, the makeup. But Jack Pierce, I would assume. And that's just, it's an impressive film, I've always thought. Circling back around to me, I'm going to potentially cause a little mutiny, if not here with my number two pick, potentially in the audience. I am going to present as my number two, 1948's Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Speaking honestly, that was probably my introduction to the Universal Monster films. I grew up watching Abbott and Costello movies and they're, you know, if you followed us during Summer Under the Stars, I have a soft spot for them. And that was my first Abbott and Costello movie. And then I watched that before I dove into the actual traditional in the Universal Monster films. And I mean, why have what monster when you can have three? You know, you have Dracula, you have Frankenstein and you have the Wolfman in this film. Abbott Costello in those films, particularly that and I would say Hold That Ghost. They show such an effective melding of the horror tone and the comedy. They make those work so well together, especially at a time where it wasn't always happening. I know I, for example, can't think of many horror comedies going back that far and ones that were actually melding of the two genres. But that is so well crafted. And if they tried something like that today, I mean, I would probably roll my eyes, the studio dropping all of their top properties into a movie with their top comedians. It's like, wow, you guys are really working hard for that crossover. But 
it works. You've got Bela Lugosi doing what he does best. You've got Lon Chaney as the Wolfman. And to be perfectly honest, Glenn Strange was my Frankenstein before I dove in. He is the first look of the Frankenstein monster that I thought of. So, and I have absolutely no problems with his performance. I know we have Team Boris on the call and we'll <laughs> we'll dive into that. I am personally offended. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a faithful take on these monsters and it's doesn't sound as cringeworthy as it should be. It's funny and there are scary moments. And I think it's really a faithful representation of these monsters. And it's a good entry point. I love this movie. I'm excited you played it. I was thinking of like more monstery feelings things, but I have such a soft spot. It's also interesting because the Universal Monsters is the first franchise you got, right? In Hollywood history. It's the first where they started doing crossover events. This wasn't the first one. Like the first ones were more strictly in the horror genre, but that you're all right. Like that was like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman was probably like such a mind blower of mm-hmm. like, what you can, ha- I watched this person in this one and they could, they're going to be together. Like I, cause even now there's fun crossover things that you can get excited about, but there's certainly not like the, Oh, what a new idea. So it's this- a cinematic universe before the term Ex- existed. Exactly. Exactly. And so Bringing Abbott and Costello into that world is even a broader idea of this crossover, right? Because then you're crossing over genres. You're also crossing over the idea that these are actors who are playing characters, but they're based on themselves and named after themselves. So there's like a, oh, this is like a real life thing of these people who get to then meet these monsters. And there is a sense of fun with that you literally just could not do now. There's not, to me, there's still like, oh, that's a fun crossover but i'm never gonna be like taken by surprise or have that sort of even slight veneer of like i said with abbott and costello being like real guys oh wait what they get to go into the monster well like you don't have that there's something magical with it and this is also it's so like zany goofy but it also really knows the horror tropes and like plays along with those conventions in a way so it's not like written by comedy people who were unaware it's not even a spoof like it's they're playing within the rule and rule book of these movies not trying to like you know because i also i'm not crazy about spoof movies in general they're so rarely actually clever so this one is a nice mixture of being more a uh, playing with convention than a let's do this in a funny way mm-hmm. That scene where the Wolfman is just changed over and Costello's character, I'm gonna, I was, see, I was mixed up the names. It's Chuck and Furt. I want to say Chuck and Ferdy, but that could be the names from all oh, that ghost as well. It's like Chuck and Ferdy and Chick and Freddy. And he wanders into the hotel room and there's a very extended sequence where you're building that tension of, oh, is the Wolfman going to get him? But he's, you know, oh, fruit, you know, and he's kind of play, you know, he's playing, he's doing his thing, but they're expertly building this tension. It's like, you know, what's going to happen because you have this monster that he's hitting with doors and getting knocked into. It's very aware of the horror conventions and it's really skillfully crafted it's chick and wilbur chick there we go okay so thank you (laughs) chick chick you can't get wrong wilbur who knows (laughs) yeah who saw that coming (laughs) yeah so if we samantha how about we circle around and start with the number one pass samantha how about you All right. I I would honestly say my top three are fairly interchangeable i really do love all three But my number one is definitely going to have to be The Invisible Man from 1933. Am I getting revealed in here? I don't know. But we were just talking earlier about Claude Rains. And I think this is a movie where he absolutely shines. He's just so fantastic in it. And he's not even relying on all of the parts of him physically to give such an amazing performance. It's really all in his voice. And his voice is just perfect for this. Everything about him is perfect for this. I also fell in love with Gloria Stewart through this movie. I think she's definitely underrated when it comes to blondes of the 30s. But 
together, they're just amazing. And of course, we have to throw a bone to Uno O'Connor, <laughs> who really does steal this movie in all of her scenes. Whenever I show this movie to anyone who doesn't know old movies or doesn't like old movies, they're kind of scared away because of Uno O'Connor. <laughs> I won't lie. Again, we were talking about the practical effects of some of these films that we're discussing. And it's just incredible what they could do in 1933 with the whole photo exposure on Black Velvet, making him appear invisible. And this movie completely holds up. It really does. It made me realize making this list how few universal horror films I've seen. But of the ones that I have, this one arguably holds up the best. And it's really murderous, too. If you really look at his body count in it, it's in the hundreds. So you can't get, to me, much better than this film. I just adore it. Yeah, he's not half-assing it in his menace at all. No, he's derailing trains. He's pushing old ladies around. (laughs) He's doing it all. You're totally right. This one absolutely stands up. And again, like with so many of these, why the monsters are interesting is because they have so many layers to him, Mm -hmm. to them. And this one is no exception. And you see, again, the progression of what he's done and what he's done to himself. You could make such a metaphor for addiction, for like, there's a lot of what he's doing here because It is self-administered how he ended up this way. And it's fascinating how in like in how that affects his life and his personality. And then what it would do to someone if they were all of a sudden felt invincible in some kind of way. And and that's beyond the implication that it's also warping his personality. And it's not just because he can get away with things he does, but also it's has other factors and how forgivable is he because of that. And, but yeah, no, it's so good and it's genuinely so threatening. And it also has the sense of fake out that becomes a horror staple when you think that they've got him or you think like, oh, it's going to all be resolved. And then like, no, he's going to get away again. Like there's so many things that are built into what is now just like the bedrock of what the shape of a horror film looks like that comes up in this. But yeah, he's so maniacal and you're so right. The idea of even just the scenes in the inn when he's in his room and berating my girl Una O'Connor or doing whatever, like the sense of menace that's coming across when through a vocal performance, basically, like it's genuinely impressive. It's a testament to the genius that was Claude Rains. We didn't deserve him, I would say, in classic film. And I have not seen this one in a while. I watched it. It was one of probably the first of the universal cycles that I watched kind of when I discovered Claude Rains after Casablanca. And it's fascinating to think back because it's such a maniacal, such an interesting, complex character. But what's the scene that sticks out for me even probably 10, 15 years after I've seen it when he's skipping and singing the nursery rhyme? It's such a layered interesting performance and he brings so much and what you see him i remember you see him what at the end briefly but it's what 99 percent of voice performance and again like i can only echo what you both have already said the practical effects claude rains it's just there's so much here and it shows why it was one of the first and it's still one of the best they always say how the imagination will make something scarier than anything else With The Invisible Man, this is one of the few that combines both the imagination and the effect. Because the effect is that you can't see someone there. And that is terrifying. Mm -hmm. There could be someone invisible in all of our rooms right now. Is there anything scarier than that? Like, that is not a fun concept. But it is a fun concept. But, like, it's a horror. It's a horrifying. The horror of the unknown. The horror of the unknown and the effects in this did such a good job of like the few times where we see the, the, you guys, you know, when we see the invisible, you get what I'm saying. You know what I'm doing there, but that we see that, that it makes it when he is bandaged or when he is like, you are so still aware of that absence of, oh yeah, it's, it's horrifying. You really run the gamut of emotions in this film because it's funny that you guys were saying that, like, you you know, Dre, you're talking about how scary this concept really is. And then Kim, you're talking about the more lighthearted parts of the film and it has both. I would still consider this a fun movie to watch. 
as scary as it is. It's both. And I think that's one of the things that I love about it too. And I didn't chime in when you guys were talking about the modern Invisible Man, just because I haven't seen it. And I'm a little scared to see it because I love the Invisible Man so much. As somebody who went into it going, oh God, what are they going to do to it? I gave it a thumbs up. I thought it was really well done. And if you're a horror fan and classic people out there, if you're intimidated by it, I would say give it a try because it's it's a new interpretation. It's definitely modernized. They don't knock it. Both stories can exist. And I think they take a very new, interesting spin. Yeah, I agree. I think the reason the new version of it works so well, like I said, if I'm just seeing Johnny Depp try and do Claude Rains, I'm less excited. I'm less excited at them throwing $100 million to replicate the visual effects of something that was made 90 years ago and was equally terrifying. The new one, the reason I liked it is they took the concept of it and completely twisted and subverted. Like, he's not even the main character. So it's a nice way around it so that you can still get something and get scared and get that thought provocation of this concept, but you don't feel like they're trotting on the original in any way. Yeah. I know. I'm just sitting over here like, can we just resurrect Claude Rains and put him in everything? (laughs) I mean, that would be an ideal. (laughs) That would also be horrifying because he's probably... Well, there's that too. ...pretty far gone at this point. He's been gone, what, 50 years at least. There's there's the real scary movie. (laughs) The sequel, um, The Invisible Man, but it's just the dust of Claude Rains. (laughs) That's horrible. I was watching House on Haunted Hill last night, just a skeleton walking around. (laughs) That was one of the movies I looked up and was disappointed that it was not universal. I wish I could have mentioned it. It could have been on my list for sure. Well, continuing on, Drea, how about your number one? All right. So now again, like Samantha, I'm now nervous of a possible Renfield. My number one is, and I feel like anyone who's like been hearing why I'm drawn to these things might guess this, but it's Frankenstein. Okay. Go right on ahead. I just, I just had to stare at Kim and Sam for a minute and see like, are you gonna? All right. Okay. So Frankenstein, like I said, for monsters, this is the eternal oh, it's Frankenstein's monster that you're talking. Okay, shut up. We've had all those arguments. We know, guys, we know. Get your pitchfork out of here. (laughs) But the monster in Frankenstein is, to me, one of the most heartbreaking. And I love that. I know that seems like an odd thing to want from your horror film, but I do. I appreciate the level of complexity that goes into making characters like that and feeling humane about something that Like he did not ask to be created. He is cobbled together out of nightmare pieces of terrible humans. And of course, the ultimate joke of like, oh, Frankenstein wasn't the monster. Well, Dr. Frankenstein's a monster himself. So fair enough. I'll also call that. That guy should be chased with pitchforks and tiki torches or whatever. But there's something about this path of Frankenstein's monster in this movie the gentleness of which it's played by Boris Carla. <laughs> and, you know, you have your really iconic scenes like with him and the little girl or learning about fire. And just there's so much in there that are so part of the culture now that are part of movies now. And they're referenced in ways that they don't know that that's what they're referencing. And there's such a sense of humanity in this. And by that, I mean, like humanity can be pretty terrible. The idea of mob mentality, of fearing what you don't know, of not trying to work around differences and find a positive outcome, but instead to like storm forth with violence and protecting the status quo. And there's so much to this movie that I find so important, but it's also, it's stunning the photography of it how it looks Uh, there's a thousand iconic shots in this that you could that could be posters of their own you know like there's so much going on here and all that again is with the central concept of a monster that i find the most heart tugging of them yeah i love this movie It's the essential. It's really one of the essentials. And with, I'd say, Dracula, because they were, what, the same year. Mm. Those are the two we think about. There is that the humanity, that heart-wrenching tragedy in in the monster or in Karloff's performance. Looking beyond, I've always, and of course, yeah, 
Dr. Frankenstein, we know, but God, there's to me, there's such tragedy in that whole thing. I'm the star persona person. And to me, Colin Clive brings such depth. We didn't have him for nearly as long as we could have. He passed away so young and there was so much going on there. He's such a complicated, interesting performer. And he's such perfect casting to as the doctor, because as I'm watching it, I find it difficult to hate him. I mean, we know Dr. Frankenstein is a tool. We know what he's doing. We know why it's wrong. But Colin Clive is such a sensitive performer as well, that there is so much there to talk about. And I mean, I was just discussing Young Frankenstein with someone last night. Something like that shows you just how iconic the moments that are crafted here are. The moment with the little girl, it was done 50 years after the fact again, and it still worked just as well. It could prove to be such an effective mode for comedy, but it's still here. I just saw Benedict Cumberbatch performing Frankenstein a couple years ago. It's it's one of the iconic horror novels, going back to Mary Shelley, and there's such history and James Whale's direction is absolutely beautiful. It's one of those, right along with Dracula again, I say that really jumps out as those early 30s horror movies and just how gorgeous and gothic and beautiful those can be. And you forget how early it was made because it's so well done. When we were talking about, ugh, are my choices basic? This was the one that I was thinking of that for that. But again, when this was made, it was the last thing from basic that they were making bold choices and artistic choices in so many ways with these movies and with this and having not seen this before or explored this before. And yeah, it's the fact that it's stuck around. Sure, it may be something more familiar, but the amount of people who probably haven't seen the original would shock me. I mean, I hope they get their eyeballs on it. Absolutely. I obviously couldn't agree more. I'm super biased because I love Boris Karloff so much, but his performance in this really rips at your heartstrings. Absolutely. I have to admit that it's a little bit hard for me to differentiate Frankenstein from Bride of Frankenstein because I don't know how many classic movie fans, hopefully you all know this, it goes from one to the next. There's no time lapsed in between sequels like many movies. And I usually watch them back to back. So it's hard for me to differentiate, oh, this is Frankenstein and this is Bride of Frankenstein. But it's one giant masterpiece when you watch them both all the way through. And as you two have mentioned, so many pieces from it have been taken and repurposed and redone. And you always go back to the original, at least I do. I think it's just so amazing. And as you mentioned, James Whale's direction, I don't think is discussed enough. I think he's really behind so many of the iconic films that we think about. And the fact that he's LGBT, a lot of people don't really talk about too. I think that's amazing. So Boris Karloff, all of it earns my love. I think about that little flower scene way too much. I think I'm glad you brought up James Whale. I mean, he's above and beyond anything he's personally bringing, like his skills as a director are just phenomenal. But I do think there's something to the the idea of Frankenstein's monster being othered and being ostracized and feared and then facing such ugly angriness from people who could have gone a different way. Like, I do think that's the kind of thing that when we talk about how we benefit from unique or underrepresented perspectives in film, that's a way that they come across. It's not necessarily that like James Whale made a story of a young man coming out or, you know, anything he maybe went through in his own life. It's how your perspective in how the world treats people can make a story richer. And I think that it definitely does. Like, I think that's something that added an extra layer that elevates all of his work. I mean, it's one of the iconic horror films, but at the same level, I mean, under Whale's direction, he's also brought to life a horror movie where we learn the othered person might not be the monster. Frankenstein is the othered one, but one has to discuss the monstrous nature of Dr. Frankenstein as well. So he's showing that you all see this as the monster, but look at how much you feel for this guy. Maybe he's not the monster. We're coming around full circle here to what I Renfielded at the beginning here. My number one creature from the Black Lagoon. So this film, I will freely admit, if you follow me on social media, you know my fondness for Richard Carlson. 
Richard Carlson is one of those early parts of my life going back to Abbott and Costello hold that ghost. So he's always been a personal favorite of mine. So this was one of the initial universal films that I, I found myself passionate about, you know, liked them all. It wasn't the first one I've seen, definitely, but it was one of those ones that was like, I'm obsessed with this. And it's also, to me, one of the more unique because this is one of the most separated from the time we've been talking talking about primarily the 1930s in drifting into the 1940s. We're jumping here to 1954 and we're drifting to another iteration of horror. We're going from the old dark houses and I mean, the monster is still here, but then you have that added fear factor of the atomic, the sci-fi kind of shift that we saw in the 1950s. And it gives us another monster who isn't really 100% I would say the monster, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Sure, he looks funny and he's the quote unquote monster, but he's just kind of defending himself. These idiots are coming into his territory. Richard Denning is up to no good. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, personally would struggle to not want to, if I were the creature, not throttle Richard Denning as well. You have so many interesting types in this movie. I mean, I cannot say good enough things about Julie Adams in that. The one lingering question I had about it, how she brought so many outfits on that little rickety boat. She looks amazing throughout this entire film. She's got clothes that I want. I would kill to fill my closet with those. But it's truly unfair, but it's such a small little boat. I'm like, how many suitcases did you bring? And then Richard Carlson kind of cresting, you know, peak Richard Carlson-ness. He's the adorable, likable, romantic lead that with, I mean, with some chauvinistic 50s elements there to it, but it's Richard Carlson, so I forgive him for that. And then Richard Denning just being Richard Denning and truly terrible. He's honestly, if we're talking about who's the monster in this film, it's probably Richard Denning's character. Up until this point, largely unexplored elements of the atomic warfare happening, the scientific developments. And it's such savvy spin on the horror that we don't really see a lot coming to the 1950s. You can see culture shifting. You can see how ideas of horror were shifting, how humanity itself was in a different place than we were in the 1930s when the old dark house was enough to scare you. It's a little more real because science can be scary. It's tough to understand and wrap your heads around. But this is, to me, this has always been my favorite. Is it the best? I don't know. But in terms of, yeah, which is my favorite, this has to be my number one. I totally understand your love of this film. I can't relate enough, obviously, since it made my top three. One of the things that I just remembered about this movie as we were talking about the cast, one of my most underrated, like way, way supporting actor loves is in this. I love Whit Bissell. I love seeing him in anything. Yes, I love him too. His scenes where he's like 100% bandaged are just so adorable. (laughs) Yeah, this movie is so cute. It's definitely not the best as far as production quality or acting, but it just has a piece of my heart. I can't explain it. Yeah, it's crazy to think that there were 20 years between when the Universal Monsters begin their film journeys and where Creature comes in and what you can pick up on. Kim was saying societally what's changing, but also in terms of how films are made, how films are meant to look. And the difference between your sort of gothic, foggy, the look of the original movies to this in the 50s, which they wanted to seem more accessible. And in a lot of ways that meant slightly more lo-fi or low, oh, it's not as stylistic, like with wants to be more this world. But then there could be like a jarring, like, well, then if everything looks like this world, then it looks like a little like that guy is in a suit. But okay. So yeah, it's just a, it's a funny difference. I think this one's great. Happy odds on the list. It's definitely would be in the top five of mine. And I feel like I might've mentioned this once, but when I first moved to Los Angeles, my accountant for like 10 years until he passed away was this older gentleman who was wonderful and had been like the accountant to the stars. And he was friends with Julie Adams. And so his 
office was full of all of these pictures Yay. went with her to a few th- and that was strangely my introduction because I recognize like he had a version of that very famous publicity portrait of her in the suit with the creature or whatever and I was like I feel like I've seen that I know that he's like oh he was like adamant I had to watch it before the next tax season and I always kind of loved that little personal connection of oh if you're gonna know one star like that's a fun one (laughs) go for it that is so cute I love that and it makes me think too sort of touching on what you were talking about Uh, we always hear like when Olivia de Havilland was alive she would talk about how she never thought Gone with the Wind would have the lasting power that it has I think Creature from a Black Lagoon, I don't think any of them involved thought that it would have any lasting power, much less what it has. I mean, that could probably apply to most of these films, but this was supposed to be that low budget B kind of sci-fi horror movie. And this has just transcended that completely. Well, the 1950s was that era. I'm sure we could all probably think of five just off the top of our head of those sci-fi slash horror atomic 1950s films. There were so many then that that would have and probably have been thrown away and forgotten about. And you can see how this is a very of a similar vein. And it's a new era in Hollywood. It's definitely a new wave in horror. Kristen Lopez, not here today, but we do want to shout out her choices. Her number one, also Creature of the Black Lagoon. Her number two, Son of Frankenstein. And number three, Bride of Frankenstein. She was getting the whole Frank family on the list. And then she, because it's Kristen and a numerical list cannot contain her, also gave numerous honorable mentions. The Old Dark House, Dracula's Daughter, and The Mummy. (laughs) I love that we said top three and she's like, Sure, I can do that. Here Uh, are six titles. (laughs) Top three, here's six. Yeah. We love you, Kristen. We love you. We all have our honorable (laughs) mentions, I'm sure. We were talking about before recording how many I was shocked were not universal films that I love. I thought I had my top three down pat. It was going without even thinking, without even Googling. I don't think Phantom was even on my list. It was just going to be Creature and The Invisible Man. And then my number one was going to be Mystery the Wax Museum. And then I found out that that's Warner Brothers. <laughs> but it just embodies Universal so well. And we were just talking about House on Haunted Hill. There are so many cat people. I was like, oh, that's RKO. I'm so disappointed. (laughs) There's so much scope, even in the Universal films. I mean, two of the ones Kristen mentioned would easily make my honorable mentions. I mean, I almost had Bride of Frankenstein on that list. So did I. I love how, but using Elsa Lanchester in there as Mary Shelley, just the crossing of the lines. The meta. Yeah, the meta. Meta. That's exactly what I was looking for. Thank you. And it's, it's such an intelligent film and coming, I mean, of course, it's whale, but coming so quick after. Once again, it's one of those early ones. Mummy is, once again, Karloff bringing Karloff's presence and nature to it. There's just so many that could be talked about that it's hard to encompass it in the top three. Indeed, but we did it. And I'm proud of us. And this gave me so many more movies I need to watch. <laughs> yeah, I think we came up with a good list, good movies. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to rewatch Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Yeah. I really wanted to talk about Hold That Ghost because technically that's my favorite, but I wanted to get the Universal Monsters in there. It's so hard. And I hard. have to give a quick shout out to Scared Stiff if we're talking about- Dean and Jerry, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that to me is my Abbott and Costello and Scared Stiff is my <laughs> Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I just have to put it out there. Good. Especially that Hope and Crosby reference at the end. I just love it. Also what? kind of meta. Hmm. <laughs> think i have seen it but i will admit i'm very weak on dean and jerry what? universal oh. you gotta fix that or was that i think that might have been paramount my goodness i, I see i'm already crossing so my wires here so I'm many studios so list. <laughs> what are your favorite top three universal horror films universal monster films if you follow us on social media let us know maybe we'll read them out on a future episode That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can follow Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcast. Like I said earlier, help us out and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Every review helps and those do matter. We're available also on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, and Podbean, all those podcasty places. 
We are also flitting around any of the social medias you could frequent, but we do spend most of our time on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, Instagram at ticklish biz, and give us a like or a follow over on YouTube. Why don't you? We do not have a direct URL yet. We're getting close, but if you subscribe to us, we'll get there soon. I believe we only have eight subscribers left. However, right now, though, just search us for Ticklish Business and you can certainly find us. As always, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We're looking to get 300 subscribers on Patreon so we can start a new ambitious series examining TCM's 52 messy movies and why they matter. Right now, Ticklish Business subscribers can get early access to all videos before they air on the site. And Kristen and I will be diving into a new series of double features with some goodness coming your way soon. Samantha, where can your fans find you? Well, I am mostly on Twitter at Classic Film Geek, but you can also find me on TikTok at Classic Film Geek. And my website is musingsofaclassicfilmaddict.com. Drea, how about you? I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark, and I also co-host a contemporary film podcast called Maximum Film. It's, you have to say it that way because there's an exclamation point on the end on the Maximum Fun Network. You can find our missing partner in crime, Kristen, on Twitter at Journeys in Classic Film. And as I mentioned, this is Kim. You can find me most often at Twitter at kpier624. And you can also catch up with what I'm watching over in Letterboxd at kpier624 as well. Finally, check out our website at journeysinclassicfilm.com. We're in the middle of 31 Days of Halloween, and we're revisiting some fun horror movies every day. This month, I'm also celebrating the Marx Brothers to honor Groucho Marx's birthday with some fun reviews of them every Monday. Keep in mind, kids, we'll be hitting November before we know it. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Till then. <laughs>